Hola, mi gente. This is Yahida Rice, and you are tuned in to Keep the Towel with Aunt Boogie. Peace, world. Peace, world. What up, world? It's your man, Aunt Boogie. Don't worry about the name. Get used to the voice. And it's another opportunity. It's a new day, and it's a new round. And here we are back at it again for Keeping the Towel. Thank you so much for tuning in and rocking and vibing with me as always. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm back at it with you. And now I'm in the sparring gym and I'm not alone. So those of you who are just coming in, there's the bag, there's the rope, there's the bike, get on it. And I'm going to have someone who's going to be coming in the ring with me. All the way from Panama, I got my girl, Yahida de la Espada. Yahida, are you in here? <laughs> I am, and thank you so much for allowing me to come in the ring with you today. Yes, yes, and I'm so grateful, so grateful. And she's all the way from Panama. Ladies and gentlemen, you already know the drill. So, Jahida, we're going to get into our corners, and we're going to get our last instructions. Make sure you got your mouthpiece in your mouth. And let's go ahead and get to the center of the ring. It is Yahida and Aunt Boogie. Round one has officially started. Let's get it going. So, let's go ahead and start from the very beginning. Let us know who Yahida is. So, my life, I, I grew up, at, well, I was born in Brooklyn. Yes! Raised in Texas. <laughs> I, can't, I can't really claim Brooklyn, though. I grew up most of my life in the South, so. Okay, I'm going to forgive you for that Brooklyn's one. Brooklyn's just uh, the place of birth. <laughs> okay. I was actually um, born in a hurricane. Yeah, Hurricane Hugo. Uh, September 21st, it, uh, it hit the eastern seaboard, and my mother wanted to, I guess, have me around the same time, and ended up being born in that hurricane. Now, with your name, Jahida, what does that mean? Growing up, I didn't really know the, the meaning of my name. Mm. You know, I would ask different people. Um, I grew up in a, in a small town, but because of the military, there was a lot of different people from, like, different cultures. So, you know, I would ask people, like, you know, do they have my name in their language? And they would say, oh, yeah, it sounds like this. It sounds like that. The woman who took care of my mother, my great aunt, I was named after her. Her name was Yada. Um, but my name is the meaning I, I've brought on my own um, as, as the years have gone by. I say that it means a precious song to the most high. And mm. that's from, you know, just asking different people. You know, some people say, oh, precious to Allah. Some people would say a beautiful song. You know, some people would say a jewel. So, you know, I just kind of put it all together and say precious song to the most high. Wow. So you came with your own meaning of your name. You know, you got to sometimes. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> the world ain't ready for you, you know? <laughs> but I like that. I like that. A precious song to the most high. And y'all, you're going to get a chance to hear. Just take us through childhood and teenage years, what was that like growing up for you? Um, well, my experience was not so unique, but also unique in the sense of my father was in the military and my mother was an educational professional. Um, so for the majority of my life, I grew up on a very tight schedule <laughs> with lots of love and lots of learning. And, you know, it was really cool because um, at some point in my in my schooling, I was able to go to the same school that my mother worked at. And so, you know, I would go to like the different uh, teachers meetings after school. And, you know, she would have to stay, you know, earlier after school to do certain things. So I would just get to know all the teachers and, you know, her friends, her work friends. And um, that really, I would say that shaped a lot of my childhood coming up because everybody around me was, pretty much either a working professional or, you know, in, in education. Being in a, a teacher's kid, and um, I've only seen that at probably like, what, three times in my lifetime when you would see a kid with their parent. And we always used to say, man, you must have the most utmost pressure in your life because you really can't <laughs> screw up in school doing nothing because everybody knows your mother. Did you have that type of pressure? Oh, most definitely. Most <laughs> definitely. And then on top of that, you get the pressure from, you know, your dad being in the military, too. And, you know, growing up in a military town, there's, there's pressure all over because, you know, mostly everyone that I grew up with, their parents were in, affiliated with the military. 
but um, to have your mother be <laughs> a teacher, uh, wow, yeah, it was, you got to get all A's, and if you don't, you know, you, you get a whooping, you know, <laughs> like, oh, if, I, if I hear anything from any teacher, you know, that's your ass when you get home, so... <laughs> No room for error. Yeah. There's no room for error. Yeah, so mom so mom put a belt to that and then dad made you do some push ups in the end. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> That's what's up. Here it is now as you grew into a young woman, teenage years, and just learning life. Were there any moments that you had to sneak away to learn? Like, all right, I gotta find some understanding here. Or was it like you just stayed on this strict scheduling as even in your teenage years? Yeah, I would say I didn't really stray too much from, you know, the, the program that my parents gave me in, you know, pretty much up until I, so I graduated high school at 17. And that's when I went to like immediately I went to college far away. <laughs> um, I was initially wanting to go to University of Miami. That had been a dream of mine since I was 17. But during undergrad, my, <laughs> yes, go Kane. Um, my, my parents didn't, um, they were just not with the program of me leaving the state to go. And then to Miami, nonetheless, they were like, no, you're going to stay right here. So I went to school in San Antonio, about two hours away from them. And that's when I was, you know, starting to explore like who I was and who I wanted to become on my own program. Um, and that, I mean... Even then, I still had, because so much of it was ingrained in my household, I still had so much of that going into undergrad. So it took me a long time to find my own way. Um, but I'm thankful of the opportunity that my parents gave me to, you know, just kind of see what the attempt of, <laughs> it's always an attempt, you know, the attempt of having, uh, you know, healthy family dynamics, they, they definitely tried to give me. So I kept that with me you know, even now to this day. Yes. And we're going to discuss more of that. And let's touch on that a little. The family dynamic for you, how important was it for you growing up? Uh, it was extremely important. You know, um, my father, he taught me from an early age, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he was a huge, like he was just such a driving force, even though like he wasn't there all the time because he was deployed. But even even then, like when he was away, I still felt like he was there, you know, like he was a very present reality in my life. And, uh, you know, so I got that from him. And then on my mother's side, you know, they I, they got married. They were they were young. My mom was like 21. My dad was 27, something crazy like that. So, they, you know, they got married young and they didn't necessarily have, you know, uh, a picture of a good, you know, a, a good household or a healthy household for them. So they, you know, they really wanted to give that to their children. So my mother on her end, she, you know, she just raised me with the intention of like education is of the utmost importance, you know, keeping your household in an orderly and cleanly fashion. You know, these are the things that they instilled in me. And I thank God that I had that upbringing. And seeing that you had that type of upbringing, I'm sure you had, like, I got to see this quarter bounce off this bed. So, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Even now, yes. When I make the bed, it has to be tight. (laughs) Now, here it is. We get Jahida in in college. This is where, for some parents, for some, it can be a scary thing. But for young people, when they get into college, this is like now the realization they start learning things about themselves at that moment were there things you started learning about yourself that you was like okay well to come into my own try see different philosophies did you have those moments most definitely and and i feel like it's funny because since i'm i'm the firstborn, my father he wanted me to follow in his footsteps he's like oh go into the air force you know join the military and i'm like i don't want to do that And then my mom's like, become a teacher. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. So when I first got into college, I was um, majoring in in psychology. But once I left, I felt like my place, I really wanted to explore, you know, human development. That was my, that was, you know, my main line in my undergrad studies of psychology. It was human development, um, the growth of the the, the human brain. 
Mm. And, you know, that just really fell in line more with education, I felt like. So I took the same trajectory as my mother. I went into education myself. And, you know, the first thing, the first pillar in my mind in education is learning how to fail. Mm. You know, part of education, I think, and this is something that is somewhat left out of schools or left out of teaching now, and especially, you know, in the Western context is you have to experiment. Part of education is experimenting. Part of education is failing. It is losing. It is also winning, but that's all encompassing of education. And so I feel like what really motivated me and has been motivating me through my life is to be in a position to fail and be in a position to experiment and, you know, see what comes from that, you know, because I think a lot of people have this idea of what they think life should be you know life should be this way should be that way but you could do everything quote-unquote correctly and still not get the desired outcome that you want at the end that's right and vice versa and all and all of these other stories that are you know super uh important as well and so i feel like for me i learned through observing my parents and you know other elders around me that you have to learn how to be in the same like state of mind whether you're winning or whether you're losing i think that's what kind of came out of all of my degrees and all of that which degrees don't mean anything either i want to say that too as much as i love and i think in education is extremely important i'm not the type that's like super elitist about it right. some people have the opportunity to go to college and some don't but that doesn't have anything to do with their intelligence level Amen. a lot of times people that go to university are not intelligent at all say you know, they that to have the money say <laughs> that oh my god say that so education to me is not something that is necessarily like you have to go through the university track you know Right. A lot of times you can meet somebody on the street that is just as educated as you or on the farm, you know, on a farmland, you yeah. know, education is tailored to the person's lived experience. So you got to kind of read that book. <laughs> you said something interesting that you had to experiment with failure. That's in sharp contrast to you growing up where it was basically with your mother in, in the school system, you're in the school with her and there it is. You were like, no, I can't come home with anything less than B or A. Where did that dynamic shift to it's okay to fail? Where did you finally get to that space where you accepted that? I mean, I, I think it was, uh, it, and still is a full-time process of not placing judgment, so much judgment on, you know, one thing, it's, it's a whole story, you know, um, mm. you can't, you can't just read a page in the middle and then judge the whole book. Like, no, you have to read the whole book. And I feel like, um, there's a, a point I wanted to double back on how I see education, you know, at the university level, what have you coming from a Caribbean background, schooling is extremely important. And I think that what we're learning, you know, the, the, the basic arithmetic and all of those things, this is a, a direct line uh, or a direct, you know, point of our lineage, our African lineage, the empire of Great Kemet, you know, mm -hmm. um, the Hausa Kingdom, you know, the Dogon, like all of these people, all of these nations, I don't want to say tribes, all of these nation groups, they gave something to modern day education. So, you know, sometimes I find that, you know, people say, oh, well, you're going to go, go get the white man's education, but the white man learned it from us, you know? So I think that also helps to break up some of that being afraid to fail because I feel like that's a very Eurocentric uh, viewpoint of education, you know? But our ancestors, they knew that they had to fail. They did, they were studying these things for like eons upon eons of centuries. And so imagine how many people had to fail before the first person found the serious A and serious B star system. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people have to be looking and they probably found it together. But I think that there's, there's something to be said about that is that we as African people, we need to understand that the things that we're learning in university and what have you, yes, it may be a white person standing at the front of the, <laughs> of the classroom, but that doesn't mean that they're, that they're teaching from their culture. They're a lot of times teaching from what we had to do in our lineages and the failures and the experiments that our ancestors, you know, brought about, brought forth. Now that you were able to finish with school and 
you now decide to go into into the education system. Because you said before, you like, eh, I didn't feel like I didn't want to do it. What prompted you now to change your mind to get into the education? Well, I saw a lot of children in need, really, really mm-hmm. and truly. Uh, my mother and her colleagues, they really showed uh, just a strong force. You know, that was back in the day when teachers could, you know, they could invite you over to their house and, you know, you could have dinner with them. Mm-hmm. You know, they could come check up on you at your house. That, those are different times, obviously, than now. My mother, she was just a force in a lot of children's lives. And, and I felt like I wanted that. I had been working in inner city schools in San Antonio as a mental health assistant. And that just really galvanized me to make the choice to go full in as a teacher. And not just as any, you know, any teacher, but a teacher that understands the mantle of decolonizing education, you know. Talk to me about that one. Teaching in the inner city schools there. What was it that you saw wrong and that you also saw that, hey, this could be corrected? What did you see? Yeah, I feel like um, because I've been able to kind of streamline my educational process, I don't necessarily have to have my own personal failures to learn from other people's mistakes or failures. Um, And just, you know, seeing a lot of uh, broken homes, Mm. you know, Um, and notice I didn't say single homes because two people can have children and not be together, but they can still be co-parenting well. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen that, but, you know, far greater, I've seen a lot more broken homes, especially, you know, teaching during this pandemic or when the, you know, the lockdown started, I saw so many parents that were faced with the reality of the choices that they made, you know, that they were not able to keep their children for full time and that they had maybe more children than they could keep. Maybe they had children with the wrong person. Um, I saw all of that, you know, really play out during the pandemic. I, I mean, obviously, I've seen I've been teaching for almost 10 years now, but it was really like a rapid fire <laughs> of perspective during the pandemic, seeing just how many people are not willing to deal with their children. Mm. And, um, you know, it just it just really was a stark contrast to my upbringing. Even before seeing this, I knew that my upbringing was a blessing. Um, you know, and I, I, I don't I don't ever want to throw it in somebody's face or or even dial down what it was because it is something of value. Um, but I really just feel like through these observations, I was able to see uh, these failures of other people, particularly surrounding their children and how to take care of them and how to love them and how to teach them. And I'm not saying that, you know, definitely education in America has failed us, right? Like there's mm-hmm. so many um, things that we didn't learn. Yeah. But public education was never meant to be the first line of defense, you know? Nope. Parents and strong family was supposed to be the, 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 the first line of defense. I don't pass blame, you know, like it's all parents' fault. But I think a lot of times, especially in America, people tend to blame teachers for the reason why their children didn't come out the way that they should have came out. But then then you take the teachers out of the equation, everybody's sent to their homes for lockdown, and people still can't take care of their kids. So was education systems or teachers really the problem to begin with? Mm. And I think that's important, that part that you brought up there, that the history of education, people understood, particularly in the Western world, what education was really used for, it was not used for to learn. It was basically to discipline. And a lot mm-hmm. of people don't really know that. And I implore y'all to please go and look that up. Go and look it up. What the education system, particularly in America, was used for, it was not used to go and teach like we think it is now or what we feel it is now because that's not even the case even today. But it was used more to discipline, to give kids discipline so that they'll be able to be, as was stated, to be productive citizens, but more disciplined citizens. Now, you brought up a good spot there with teaching in the pandemic. And we heard a lot of stories where kids had to now do this thing of virtual learning. Of course, it was nothing new to some, but to a lot of people, it was new. Now the nation started to learn something different of, wow, not every child has internet access. Not every child is right. able to 
who in certain areas, they are able to have complete internet access. And now here it is. You just started seeing all these companies out of nowhere just started flooding money into different schools so that these kids can get internet access, like in the rural areas, in lower income areas. So for you, like so many teachers that were dealing with this thing, what was your first reaction when now it came to virtual learning? Now it's like, wow, I don't have no kids in front of me. I have to now teach these kids on a on a Zoom or whatever. What was your first reaction with it? I mean, it was it was jarring, you know, mm. for, for many people. Before the pandemic started, I was pretty much throughout my career. I have been involved with uh, the union. You know, I feel like if you're going to make a change, you can't just be talking about it on your own. Um, it's very important to have other like-minded individuals around you. So I was involved with my union. We were doing a lot of stuff because the school district I was working in, Houston ISD, had been taken over by Texas Education Agency that school year in 2020. And so we were fighting that. That was a lot of the fight and also the you know charter school takeovers and whatnot. But when it came to virtual learning, there was really no system. And even I want to say this too, because a lot of my teaching career has been in the special in special education. I feel like, you know, there has been um, students who couldn't necessarily come to school. There was a virtual learning component for them, but it was never developed on a large scale. And even for those, those students with special needs, it wasn't a, it wasn't a streamlined approach yet. So in my opinion, there's no virtual, there's no learning that happened virtually, you know, for that whole school year, particularly for the students in the inner city, particularly for the students, like you said, that don't have internet access or, you know, like one of my students, they had five siblings and one is in high school. So the one that's in high school is going to be taking up the, the one computer that the family has. The family most likely doesn't have five computers Correct. so that all five of the students can be on at the same time, you know? So, um, I, I say all that to say that there was there was a bunch of cracks in the system before the pandemic started. Then the pandemic came and now there's even more cracks. Now we're looking at after lockdown and then there's even more cracks. So, you know, in my opinion, you know, you ask me, like, what's the answer to it all? Um, I would say homeschool your children is the best option, you know, for the future. I don't feel virtual learning is good. You know, I, I definitely think that there is uh, some hope and a future to that, but I don't think that it's going to be the best option for a well-rounded uh, child to be on virtual learning all day long. And doing that with special education, as as I'm sure you know, special ed students got a very bad rap, and that was not always the case. So seeing that you had to now navigate those students in, in a world that, they were that they're used to being in front of a class, getting different type of attention, different curriculum so that they'll be able to understand. And as you said, that now they're in a home where they have four of the siblings or three and now they're trying to navigate. Did you have to now tailor differently to each student or was it like I had to keep this for this class? I've, I mean, I've always been in a position of like differentiating my instruction. That's like a hot word that the teachers say. Um, which basically just means that every student gets a tailored experience. But I mean, but think about this for a minute. If I'm supposed to be differentiating instruction inside the classroom, which is difficult with 25 plus students, mm. and then you get virtual, even if there's only 10 students that come on the computer, it's still going to be very difficult to differentiate that on the computer. Because it's already hard enough to do that in real life, in real time. Um, so even the best teachers were, were struggling and fumbling, you know, that situation. So um, I say all that to say, like, going back to, my, to an earlier comment, public education was never, or even private education, any education outside of the house was never meant to carry a child through the different stages of growth and development. That was mm. never supposed to be uh, the way. You look at before math education um, in America, majority of students were getting taught at home, you know, so I, it's it's hard for me to say like that any that any education happened virtually, you know, that year that we were all on lockdown. I, I don't personally think that it happened. Yeah. And, I, and I've heard that from other educators said the same thing that 
not much was done because they started seeing students were barely logged in or they would log in and they would log out or they would um while they're in class they're playing video games and all that stuff and and that was incredible and i think also when i was looking at one story that an educator said that she started to see what was really going on in the home one time she just saw she was talking to her child and she can hear the mother just basically excoriating the father or whoever it was and she was like wait your child is in the middle of school and you are talking like this or you saw Mm -hmm. one video where a child's in the middle of learning and the mother just comes out and just sparks up some weed right in front of the child and the teacher had to say excuse me and like oh i'm sorry and it's like wow so it's so amazing when you heard these stories that these teachers were like, yeah, I wasn't prepared for all this. And as you said earlier, that when parents expect you as a teacher to mold this child into something incredible, like, hey, I need you to mold my child into the next senator or something or doctor. No, that's not my job. I'm guiding them, but that's your job as the parent to mold them. So... And I think that when you give these teachers the when the teachers get the blame like that, um, that's where you see a lot of teachers burnout. You see a lot of it. So explain that to me in the world of educators, how stressful that can truly be dealing with parents. What was your experience like with that? Yeah, I would say I would say something a lot similar. And, you know, just to, to provide perspective, I am not a parent myself yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Again, I'm, I'm not speaking from a position like blame the parents because obviously everybody gets a different hand that's dealt in life and you just got to do the best with what, with what you have. But, you know, this all of this teacher bashing has to stop as well because, you, like you said, all of these things are happening. Me, I, I, I think throughout my teaching career, I've had, you know, pretty good relationships with my parents. I've tried to build that rapport, you know, in the beginning of the school year so they know you know i'm when i'm calling you i'm not just calling you to tell you the bad things that your child has done i try to make those you know positive phone calls home and that works that does wonders you know i'm getting invited to cookouts and birthday parties <laughs> and, and you know all of that which is what i love you know that's that's the best part of the job um but obviously you have parents that are you know some parents are just roaming the streets on crack you know let's be real about it you know, and they're and they're the the child is being taken care of by their grandparents or what have you. You know, so again, these are some major hard life life issues that children are coming into school with. But when they come into my classroom, I can't speak for other teachers, but when they come into my classroom, everybody gets a clean slate. Mm. I don't I don't care for better or for worse what you got to do to be here and present with me. You know, I try not to give too much homework because to me, it's like you're home. You got to rest. Even children got to rest. But while you're here with me, we're going to learn and it's going to be engaging. And, you know, you're going to reflect on things. And it doesn't matter if you're in the first grade or not. Like there's going to be some higher level thinking going on. Um, So I feel like even the worst of the worst parents would see that, you know, or guardians, they would see that from me you know so they they would be more hands-off with me because they knew like okay my child's in good hands but for me it's like then i then i get off work and then i go straight to my altar and start praying for for my kids you know because i'm like dang i just sent them back to the wolves basically Mm. you know Mm. and and so it so i think a lot of people don't really understand that it's like yeah i may not have my own children right now but i have a hundred plus children if that makes sense yes you know, that I'm praying for, that I'm hoping that make it, you know, and and want and want to make sure that they're eating and stuff like that. So there's also this um, I don't want to say ownership, but there's also this uh, responsibility that a good teacher will have when when, you know, she's taking care of, of, of her students, you know, to say, like, I want this child to grow not just in my classroom, but outside of this classroom. I want them to be a good citizen of the world, you know. Um, and that takes a lot of, of energy that takes so much energy. And I don't think that that's really accounted for in our job. Yeah. There's some people that come to the job just to get a paycheck, even though to me, that doesn't make any sense because the paycheck isn't that good anyway. Yeah. You have those 
teachers. I'm not going to say that obviously all teachers are good because that's not the case. But you have a lot of teachers such as myself that really just want to help to sharpen the sword of the children that are in their in their under their influence, if you will. Yes. Um, and that's not something that's really taken into account in our in our in our salaries, in our respect, and you know within the community. Jahida, being as that as an educator, taking it home. You hear a lot of teachers say that. You take this stuff home. It's hard to separate it. Again, as you said, you have 25 plus students and it can take a mental strain on you because you're taking home these kids, meaning that, you know, they can sit with you and say, um, teach, can I speak to you for a moment? I'm going through this at home. I'm dealing with that in the home explain what that was like just just give us a little glimpse you are done with with the classes you've done the last paperwork and then you take a deep breath and say all right time to go home and when you go home you can't really rest at times because you're still remembering two or maybe three students who spoke to you about something that is happening in their enclave oh wow that's that's a deep question <laughs> um and um i would say it, it's hard, you know, especially like me. Most of the schools that I've worked in have been schools with black and black and black and brown communities in the inner city, whatever, however you want to say it, you know, and typically I'm coming from a position that I have these degrees. Right. So already I'm looked at as an outsider in the community, even if I live there. Um, but that's what my mother taught me. She's like, you know, if you're going to be a good teacher, you got to live amongst the people that you're serving. You can't just be busting yourself in. Like, you got to live amongst the people. So that's always um, a choice that I made. And mm. it's, it's tough, you know, because I see the school-to-prison pipeline full well in my job. You know, I see the foster care-to-prison pipeline full well in my job. And so when I have a, a child that outcries to me, I have to make a judgment call that you don't know you don't know if it's gonna go good or bad you know i had a, I had a child at one point gave me a, a very horrific story so it's like okay obviously i have to i have to call cps you know like this is this needs to be settled immediately but then there's other there's other times where it's like okay maybe maybe the belt got a little too close to the bone or something you know and then it's like okay i have to make that choice to not call and hope that I made the right choice because then you could you could fire and, and make that phone call. And then now the child's taken out of their house prematurely or, you know, the, the parent just was giving them a whooping or they were just too tired. You know, the, the parent got tired with whatever the kid was bringing or whatever. So that's a rough spot to be in because as a teacher, you have the responsibility to make that phone call. If a child tells you, you know, X, Y, Z is happening in my household. But then at the same time, you also have to make that judgment because it's like, okay, am I am I going to be the source of breaking up this home even more? Ooh. And that's not something that's talked about a lot in our job description. Ooh. Wow. If you're a teacher that children feel safe around, you know, I always try to make sure that my that, that my classroom was a, in order in an orderly and cleanly uh, environment, like my mother taught me. Because then they can let that baggage go at the door. But then when they let that baggage go, sometimes it's like you said, a lot of times it's like, hey, Ms. Delaspada, I'm dealing with this. And, you know, so you have to be able to make that judgment to counsel the child through what they're going through or, you know, send them to the school counselor if there is one or, you know, make that full call and, and make that call yourself. But it it doesn't matter what choice you make you're always wondering did i make the right choice wow man once everybody was able to go back into school your thoughts on this now when it was like okay the san antonio texas schools are now reopened what were your thoughts then i mean i wish that people could have stayed home longer you know for many reasons but you know, the main reason being so they can sit with the choices that they've made more in their face. I when think you a say lot that, of, what do you mean by the choices they made? What do you mean? Okay, so let me say this. Your children, you know, to all the parents, your children are not the angels that many of you parents profess them to be, <laughs> you know? And and I'm sorry to say it. Not all of your children are going to go and be an astronaut, you know? Mm. We still need welders. 
trade school is very important. We still need electricians. We still need HVAC operators. We still need truck drivers. Like those, those jobs are just as important as the, co- the, the college professor or the doctor or the lawyer. All of these things are needed. So I think, um, again, it just goes back to people managing their expectations. You can't put all of this stuff on a teacher and expect for society to run, you know, in, in tip top shape. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And majority of teachers are female. So, like, it, I can only give a young boy but so much. There has to be those, those fatherly figures in, in the house or around the house. The uncles and, 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 and the, the grandfathers and, you know, the, the Taekwondo instructors. Like, all, all of those men got to step up, too. That, that's going to give us an all-encompassing experience when it comes to making sure that the next generation is, is good. As much as I talk about um, broken homes, I don't think, I mean, I think it also does damage for people to stay together and just, you know, be in, in a household that the people are arguing all the time. Like you mentioned, the mother is, is um, the woman is berating the, the man in the household and emasculating him. Like, that's not good to see either. So, you know, so we all we all can't keep passing the buck, you know, there has to be some ownership of the problem. We, we all have to a- attack the problem at our position, you know, and I would say the largest pandemic is not COVID, it's broken homes. Amen. Amen on that one. Amen on that one. Now, that is what I've always said when it came to that, that that is the largest pandemic. It's the fractured home, it's the fractured community. And I go back, hark back to what you said before, that back in the day, it was like, you know, the teacher came to your home and that's not the case now. I remember those days when you had that teacher saying, oh, well, I'm gonna pull up to do that surprise visit. They don't even tell you. They just knock on the door and you're like, oh my God, wait, wait. That's Ms. De La Espada. What, what you doing here? And it's like, hi, came to talk to your mother. And you know, you're like, I thought you was playing. But yeah, you really at the home. And <laughs> next thing you know, a rapport is built. A rapport is built between educator and parents. And I remember, yeah. I'm sure, I don't know, if, I'm sure you remember the movie Lean On Me. Yeah. When, you know, movie. that movie scared me straight. Like before Scared Straight. <laughs> That was the movie that my mother <laughs> took me to. So, yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, when you saw Joe Clark go into the home and talking to um, to his well-known student and her mother and it's like, wow, you don't see that anymore. You don't see mm-hmm. the educator sitting there and being part of the community. And I think that's something incredible what your mother said to you. You can't be the one busting to the school. That doesn't make sense. You got to be in the community so you can understand. You made an incredible move, an incredible paradigm shift for yourself when you decided to leave the States and go overseas. What was your impetus for that? And how long were you mulling that over? (laughs) That's a great question. I have been mulling this over pretty much all of my adult life. I mean, after after I got out of undergrad, I was, I was 21 and I just felt like, you know, I had family in, you know, overseas and, you know, I would talk to them and I started to get other experiences, different academic scholarships and stuff. And I, so I was able to pretty much use my, my brain for my benefit. You know, I was able to get into these programs. I had a Fulbright. It was an amazing experience. And I, and I just started to travel more um, and I got to see how people operate in other cultures and other societies. And I would say a lot of it is a huge uh, respect on the teacher and on the educational system. And then, you know, comparing that to my experience of being a teacher that's not respected in my society, that I'm just like a glorified babysitter for so many people. And then the pandemic, I was just like, oh, I can't take, I can't deal with this. You know, like I don't even want to be in my house let alone virtually. Um, so let me see what it's like to be somewhere else. And I feel like for me, I, I love, there's a TED Talk um, by one of my favorite authors, uh, a Nigerian woman by the name of Simamanda Ngozi Aditi. And she talks about the danger of a single story. And and I really just felt like, because there's a, there are a lot, I would say that, you know, if you know where to look, there are a lot of scholarship opportunities and fellowship opportunities for educators. 
for me, it's like I got to go and see how other people live. Depending upon where you grow up will depend on the story that you tell yourself, period. And so for me, I felt like when I traveled during my summertime, my summer break off as, you know, when I was teaching in the States, I came back with so much more to give my students because I I was talking to the people on the other side of the world. Hey, what are y'all's folk tales that y'all give your children? Hey, what are, you know, how is, what is y'all's mathematical system look like? All of these different questions that I started to get answers to, it really just enriched my teaching even more because I had a, a greater worldview. And and I feel like, you know, that's what um, Kimamanda talks about in her TED Talk. Like, you have to you have to go and see the other story. There's a huge danger with a single story because, you know, if I just come up in the third ward in Houston, Texas, and I never leave my block, that's all I'm going to know. Right. I'm only going to know the dynamics of that block. I'm only going to know the dysfunction and, and the healthiness of that block. That's all I'm going to know. I'm only going to know the trees that are on that block. And then it's like you go to another part of the world and you see like these, tr- these fruits that you've never seen before. And it just it just like expands your mind so much because you're like, wow, I never thought that something like this could exist. And then you start you start going with that. And you're like, wow, if if. If I didn't know that this existed, what are some other things that I don't know that exist? Mm-hmm. And then it's and then you keep going with that, and you're like, what are some things that nobody knows exist? You know, what what are some things that still haven't been discovered on this planet? And that's that's what I you know when I talk about like have this uh, this saying you know no more cultural wasteland. Um, I find that a lot of what we're doing in, in our black and brown communities um, are just creating cultural wasteland. And again, I'm not saying that you know, two people have to stick it out and be miserable with each other. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that children need to be taken care of. We have to ensure that whatever we're doing in our day to days as the adults and the grown ups of society is that there is a, a fail safe for our children as well. So we got to get it. We got to get in the driver's seat of that. I encourage people to then this has also been like expanded through my travels. I like to write stories for children. But I encourage other people to write, to learn how to write so they can become the authority of their over their own story. Because really, the only thing that makes them someone an authority of something is because they authored it. We have this conversation now of, uh, what is it? Um, I, what's that word? Uh, I'm blanking. It's, you know, when, um, what is the word about the curriculum? Like, they don't want the the curriculum to oh, be talked about in school. Um, uh, I think what you were talking about, critical race theory. Critical race the theory. Critical yes, race theory. You. That so was now, a big thing not too long ago. Yes. Yes. So now we have this conversation of all of these people that are not educators coming into schools and saying what teachers can and cannot teach. And it's like, let's teach it all. Let's teach the good, bad, and the ugly. And if and if the people that the pseudo powers that be are not willing to teach it then we got to we got to author our own story. We got to be in the driver's seat of that creative expression as a people because I really do feel like that's the piece that we're missing in the black and brown community is that there's not enough authors. Even it doesn't matter if you come from a a single parent home, two parent household, a co-parent household, whatever. If you learn how to write your own story, then that that becomes the story. Now that you you decide to make your move, leave the states and you went overseas, there was an interesting story you had spoken about, and if you don't mind sharing, um, I think you went to Tanzania, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Please, if you if you're willing to share, what was your experience like out there? Uh, it was it was amazing. It was stretching. It was terrifying at some moments. Being a woman, being a solo woman traveler is it can be. Uh, it can it can really you know induce anxiety when you're in these spaces that maybe don't um, really hold women in high regard um, or just you know they have different gender dynamics and you don't really know where you fit in the in the midst of all of that it can become kind of anxiety inducing but I would say beyond that it was such a, an amazing experience particularly in Tanzania because I got to learn so many things that my history books didn't teach me in school. You know, which um, one of them being that um, East Africa is uh, a lot of people told it to be the cradle of humanity. It is where 
humans first began or, you know, our story as humanity first began. It was also amazing because I got to learn about the founding father, Julius Nyerere. He was uh, a teacher, actually. He was a, a school teacher before he led, um, it was called Tanganyika at the time. He led the country into revolution. He was a teacher before then. Um, and so that was a really beautiful uh, piece of information to get because it just opened up my eyes so much more to say, wow, I'm not just a glorified babysitter. Wow, I can't actually lead a revolution if I wanted to. Like, wow, this is possible. Something that I have learned, uh, I think more recently that's been coming up in my mind is, you know, going back to this aspect of no more cultural wasteland. Like, if you if you go to many parts on the continent of Africa and even Asia, a lot of the people uh, take care of each other. Their their relationship dynamics are a lot different than what we practice in the West, which is, you know, typically monogamy, two-parent household, and, you know, you have your 2.5 children in the suburbs, what have you. Um, that is the average or, you know, the standard of American living, as they say. But you go to these different places, and if you look at the Maasai, for example, like, they have relationship dynamics that are completely different than anything that I've ever seen before. You know, the women go with different men, and the men go with different women, and they all are just roaming together. And it's very beautiful in that way because they take care of each other. Um, and obviously there's disputes, but they always take care of it internally. Um, and so I think what I've learned for myself is just how can I um, replicate that in a way that is, you know, tailored to my experience and my lived reality. And really and truly it is um, just letting go of ego. I mm. think especially in the West, I don't know what, I don't know if it's, well, yeah, part of it is, I guess, our education. But we have these huge egos that I'm just not willing to keep around anymore. Um, I think that our egos is what gets us into so much trouble, even around the world. You know, we get into all of these wars with other countries and we tout ourselves to be the best right. or excuse me, told ourselves to be the best. And that's just not the case. And then especially after this whole lockdown pandemic thing, like we all as humanity, we're in a turning point right now. You know, we have the ability now to wipe the slate clean and start fresh with everything. For me, the, in my future, I see, you know, more experimenting um, more w more wins and losses from those experiments, uh, prayerfully more wins than losses. Yes. And, uh, you know, just doing all of the things that we thought that we couldn't try on different things, see how they feel. That's, that's how I, that's how I see, um, myself moving forward. I don't particularly want to go back to the, like back to the state. Um, because I just, I just see a lot of dysfunction just being, rinse, wash, repeated um, in in just different dynamics, interpersonal relationships and things. I'd rather be with people that enjoy being in nature. That's... Life is more slower. Life mm -hmm. is more, uh, you know, chill. You get to see things a bit clearer. Life is not so much based upon your output and how much work you're doing. Obviously, people need to make money and have a house, but it's not about all of these material things that you have. It's more like, wow, I live by this river and I can catch fresh fish or I have a mango tree that's coming up in season or, you know, these things that you really are more teachable than being in a classroom. Nature yes. is, to me, nature is the first defense, even, even beyond the parents. First it's nature, then it's the parents, then maybe school. But the best teacher is nature, so... I see for myself just being in more of that and uh, cultivating more of that. Jahida, why do you keep your towel? Mm. We had Kwanzaa recently, and um, my favorite word to say <laughs> in Zaili is kujichagulia, um, which means self-determination. Uh, what keeps what what allows me to keep my towel is that is taking charge of this new dawn, this new day, as Nina Simone said, taking charge of this. Like, I, I remember coming up in my childhood, like, I knew that something, I'm not going to say catastrophic, but I knew something big was going to happen in my lifetime. I didn't know what it was, 
I didn't know what, like how it was going to transpire, but I knew something major was going to happen in my lifetime. So that kind of always, that also kept me in a position of, of, um, you know, not going too far left or too far right with things, but trying to stay, you know, kind of straight and narrow. And now that we've seen <laughs> in our lifetime, this catastrophic major event, um, I just, I can't, I can't quit now. You know, there's so much more to do. There's so much more to, to just live out, you know, and, and really say like, this is how I want the future to be. I have that ability to create that now, you know, and, and this whole metaverse virtual stuff, you know, that's all, that's one way, you know, I'm not going to talk down on it because there, there are some benefits that can come through that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was coming eventually anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, there are some benefits of that. I don't necessarily want to like partake in them right now, but um, regardless, I want to keep that line going of developing my natural uh, senses, my natural body. Um, that that to me is the antidote of some of the negative things that can come up with this metaverse virtual reality that we're, you know, being pushed into. Um, and so. Yeah, I just that's that's what makes me keep my towel. Like, I want to take charge of all of that. I want to I want to put my hands in that. I want to create that new world for myself, for my legacy, um, for many more generations to come. That's what's up. All right, world. There you have it. This is an incredible sparring session that I have with this incredible woman, man. Just the glow with her too, Yahida. Before we hop out of here, you got any last words? Let them know about it. Let them know about your social media. The floor is yours. Thank you again so much, brother, for allowing me to um, speak with you today. Uh, my social media is Yahaira Wright. Uh, it's my name, Y-A-J-A-I-R-A. And Wright, you can find me there. Keep doing your thing. I, I think your voice is so needed in, in society right now, brother. You're telling great stories. Well, thank you so much, Yahida. Thank you, thank you. Well, folks, there you have it. I'm telling you, man, you had to go ahead and go and bring in my sparring opponent all the way from Panama to come here and uh, have a good sparring <laughs> session with me. So, Yahida, you officially survived Boogie's Gym, and I thank you. So, folks, I'm going to put all her social media information in there so you'll be able to go ahead and connect with her and everything. And I promise you, y'all, y'all want to definitely check out some of the videos that she was able to pop up. That is it. The round is officially over. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for chilling and rocking and vibing with me for another episode of Keeping the Towel. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, like I always tell you, wipe the blood, wipe the sweat, wipe the tears. But whatever you do, don't throw in your towel. This is your man, Aunt Boogie. I'll check you when I check you. I'll see you when I see you. I am out of here. Peace.